What's up, everybody? This is Steven from the Do Work Podcast, and you're listening to the 11th episode. 11th. What's going on, guys? It's Cody. Yo, Steven, what'd you do today? Today, I fought a fully involved structure fire. Fully involved, ladies and gentlemen. Like an hour and a half before we recorded this episode. Thanks to Chief for letting us record on duty. Well, Steven's on duty. I'm off. But anyway, thanks. Yeah. And luckily, we didn't have any calls while we were recording. But back to this fully involved structure fire. It was a doghouse. Fully involved doghouse. We went transitional. Wow. I couldn't fit in the doggy door. Steven tried to make an aggressive interior attack. I did uh, vertical ventilation by ripping the entire roof off. Have you ever done that, ladies and gentlemen? Have you ever cut a whole roof off? I didn't I didn't cut it off. I pried it off with my bare hands. Bare damn hands. Actually, with my gloved hands, but still. Meanwhile, the two dogs that occupied that house were just watching me work. I was like, okay, I hope there's not a third one. They were probably complaining, like, why did you have to rip our roof off? I guess somebody forgot to point out the hazards of heating lamps being left unattended. Small little thing, you know. How did that start, do you think? How, how do heating lamps set up light, light off a, a doghouse? Because I've had a dog where for nine years it had a heat lamp in his doghouse. I mean, it never caught fire. I don't know. Do they have hay in it? No. It, they had uh, combustible comforters and stuff for the dog to lay on. See, that probably heated up and off-gassed and then flashed. Had a full fucking flashover inside the doghouse. <laughs> the dogs weren't singed. They were out on the town. Yeah, they said, fuck this. We're out. They were out exploring the snow, which good for them. We got snow on the ground. Snow on the ground in the panhandle. Yeah, like half an inch. A little dusting, but that's usually what we get. So, Cody, what'd you do today? I got off duty this morning. We had zero calls yesterday. Lame. We did a shitload of training, though. But that was yesterday. Today, I studied. Did a bunch of reading and company officer. Then messed around with the kids, and then I came here. Uh, drank this entire nasty. Oh, that's that's why drink. he's acting fucking crazy. Because I brought him a rip it. I don't know if you've ever had a rip it. I haven't. It tasted like mildew. No, it tastes amazing. Seriously, it tastes like mildew. Anybody who's curious, if you have veteran friends and they like, you gotta have a fucking rip it. You have to sit in the backyard over a, a campfire and just regale you with stories of nostalgia concerning rippets they taste like mildew it's like a towel that's been on the shower floor for like a week not aired out that's that's the that's the aftertaste of a rip he drank the whole thing so tell him to suck a dick it was nasty that's what you survived on in afghanistan was rippets and tobacco that was it that's all you had to have everybody traded it it was our currency and it was amazing i mean i loved rippets i bought these for like two dollars and thirty cents at that pack and sack and and then you can get them for like five bucks at the Dollar Tree for like 20 of them. That's incredible. It's amazing. I love Rippets. How many did you drink at one time while you were over there? Oh, you drank them all day. Really? Yeah, you're probably only supposed to have like one a day, but we just all day, every day. Didn't they use methamphetamine on the German side back in World War II to create super soldiers that would never sleep? That was our Rippets. That was your methamphetamine, you mean? The Rippets did that to us. <laughs> Y'all were super soldiers. And now look at you. You're all fucking crazy. You're going to be bouncing off the walls all day long. I know. How am I going to be able to take my afternoon nap at the retirement home in the recliner whenever I got to rip it coursing through my veins? It's more effective if you you mainline it as opposed to ingest it. Of course. It gets in your blood faster. Steven, we had two badass guests coming up. Yeah, I think you guys should look forward to it. You've seen their names. They're very active on Facebook, especially if you're part of the Engine Company Resurrection Group, which if you aren't, I highly recommend you go and join if you're interested in Engine Company, uh, all things Engine Company. 
and I know you've seen it, the Smoothbore Cartel. You've seen the hats. You've seen the shirts. You've seen the patch. Now you get to hear from the owner. Yep, that's pretty cool. And uh, one of the uh, companies that's offering training in Texas, which is pretty seldom. It's like a, it's a, it's kind of a dry market here. But FD Tactics is kind of leading that here in this great state and former republic. And you remember it. (laughs) (laughs) They're offering training. Chief Howard Reinwald is... uh, heading that up. So uh, for everybody in Texas, it's a big state. Sometimes it might be easier to travel to another state if you're on the outskirts like we are. Um, but for everybody down south, uh, definitely make the trip out to the woodlands. I hear they have a fantastic training facility out there and they are constantly bringing all these heavy hitters in the fire service down to Texas. So yeah, definitely check out Kyle Romagus and uh, Chief Reinwalt, man, there's two intelligent, intelligent dudes. They know a shitload about engine operations. They do a, uh, the training for FD Tactics, and they have a bunch of classes, and they're bringing, like Steven said, bringing in a bunch of heavy hitters for all sorts of shit. Uh, we're definitely going down there, so if you see us down there, definitely say what's up. Get a smoothbore cartel hat. With uh, Engine Company Resurrection, they got their scholarship that they're doing. They get money brought in from... People who buy uh, into raffles, yeah, they the, do raffles yeah, the smooth bark. for tools and all sorts of cool swag. And once he has enough, he'll send one of the guys who bought into the raffle, one of the guys or gals, to conference. Yeah, you'll definitely hear all about it in the interview. Hope you guys like it. And that's a really good thing that you're doing, Kyle. We're going to be at the Box Alarm Fire Academy training that they're doing. When is that? Is that in April? Yep, April at the end of April, actually. Yeah, so any of our listeners who want to travel down to Texas or who are already in Texas and want to go to a training, we'll be over there. Come say hello. Have a beer with us. Keystone or Lone Star. Keystone. Or Modelo. Keystone. What about Bud Light, the Cowboys beer? Keystone or Guinness. Guinness is a good one. Definitely. So we want to see you guys out there. I think we're going to stop rambling now, and you're going to go straight on to the interview portion of this episode. Enjoy. What's up, everybody? It's Steven with the Do Work Podcast. What's up, guys? It's Cody. We have uh, two guests from the great state of Texas. First one, Chief Howard Reinwalt. He has uh, 15 years as a firefighter. He's a fire chief over at East Montgomery County Fire. He's a co-founder of Engine Company Resurrection and the owner of FD Tactics. And also on the show today, we've got Kyle Romagus. He's a captain at East Montgomery County Fire. Kyle's been in the fire service for 15 years. Kyle is the owner of Smoothbore Cartel and Engine Company Resurrection. Kyle teaches aggressive engine company operations with FD Tactics Training and Oath Keepers. Kyle's obsessed with engine company operations, just like me. I mean, that, that's, my, that's my thing. Everybody knows that one. Kyle attended 13 conferences in 2018. I'm so jealous. Like, we're trying to get like three or four in 2019. In his free time, Kyle organizes and conducts fundraisers to send firefighters on all expense paid trips to training across the country and put top quality tools in their hands to do work. Do work, Steven. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having us, man. Thanks, brother. Man, we're excited to have you guys on the show. We're big fans of uh, Engine Company Resurrection, big fans of FD Tactics. We've been watching you guys for a while, and I'm, I'm really excited to get you guys on the show. Well, we're excited to be here. Heck yeah. So Kyle, both you and Howard have 15 years in the fire service. Did y'all come in it together? How long have y'all known each other? Man, we've known each other pretty much our whole career. Um, he actually started a little bit earlier at East Montgomery County, where we work now. It was New County Fire Department back then. He actually started as a volunteer here. 
and I started as a volunteer at a different fire department, but we were both hired on here when the department went full-time together. We were on uh, different shifts, so we pretty much spent our career together, although we've had side jobs, uh, different full-time jobs other places. Awesome, and now he's your chief. Howard, you let Kyle get away with uh, certain things since he's been a thorn on your side this whole time? <laughs> no, man. I try not to let anybody get away with anything, no matter what relationship I have with them. There you I think, go. Uh, accountability is a huge thing, and, and whether it's your friend or, or not, you got to treat everybody the same way. Well, definitely from the little bit that I've known that I can see and can tell of Kyle, I can guarantee this dude's he's super passionate about the fire service, and he's probably a huge benefit to have there at your fire department. Absolutely, man. Uh, we're, we're really trying to push the conference thing, get everybody out there to learn new things outside of what we do inside of our, our own department. And Kyle kind of, he kind of led that off and started with the conferences and spread the vision a little bit. So now everybody's wanting to go. So it's costing money, but it's a great thing for the service we're providing. That's awesome, the culture that y'all are creating there. There's really not that many conferences in the state of Texas that you can go to. Or maybe I just haven't heard of it because I just now started getting into this whole scene. Yeah, there's not. And that's, that's kind of the big push for the FD Tactics side of things is, is to get these guys to come here to the state of Texas because we don't have that. We've followed Kurt Isaacson for a long time now. And, and anything he's doing, we try to, we try to hit him up and, and do just follow him around wherever he's going. But bringing those guys here is important because it, it's a lot cheaper on the organizations. It, we're spending tons of money on flights and hotels, and it's not that expensive to go to a conference. So if we can get them here and save guys money, we get more people local involved. I, I think it's better for everybody. Yes, sir, definitely, Chief. With us up here in the Panhandle, I mean, we have there's, – there's nothing. I mean, there's no trainings that are happening around us. Everything's down south. And the, the conferences themselves are not expensive. I mean, they're they're worth it. It's just then it's the hotel and it's the travel time and it's it's everything else that we got to put in it. So I know with me and Steven, we're, we have to budget for these things. And I'm sure everybody else does. But whenever it comes to a, a class, we, okay, the class isn't bad. Okay, now we've got six days, two travel days, and then six days on at the class or whatever. And we're excited and I'm super excited for what FD Tactics is bringing to the table. And then with Engine Company Resurrection, you got training at your fingertips. That's amazing. Let's talk about the uh, Engine Company Resurrection and how that got started. So basically, the ECR page got started. It was kind of a brainchild between me and my battalion chief on another shift. So I rode the B shift for a while before I moved to the C shift. And uh, what one of my good friends is the battalion chief on the C shift, which is currently my battalion chief now but basically when i got off in the morning uh, me and him would go around the tahoe and we do what we call looking for fires so we just drive around looking for fires bsing and uh talking about fire shit man and uh that was one of the things that we started talking about was a need for a localized place where good quality information can be spread you know social media is the best and the worst thing that could happen to the fire service there's a lot of great stuff on there and there's a it's just drowned by a bunch of BS and keyboard warriors and, you know, experts in their so-called fields. I mean, you can, do, you can be anybody you want with a keyboard in front of you, man. But that was really the start of it is I wanted a localized place where good information on aggressive engine company work could be pretty much kept alone uh, there for everybody to access. And that's why I really pushed the file section. When I started the page, I started adding a few files here and there, and then I got a lot of requests from other stuff. And I actually have a Google Drive that's about 75 gigs or so full of engine company operations material, man, and I just slowly started adding to it. But basically, it's just a place for like-minded, aggressive engine company operations to be discussed, to be able to, to put it all in one place 
And really when I started it, it was just me, and I added every heavy hitter in the engine company world that I could think of. Dennis Laguerre, Vincent Dunn, Kurt Isaacson, Jason Fulmer, Matt Donnie, Chris Gilpin, you know, a bunch of guys that, that really add to the pitch. Stretch, Stretch Martin, Andy Plopkin, Jerry Herbst. And it was just me and these heavy hitters, man. <laughs> so I was just kind of taking advantage of being in a group with these guys and being able to pick their brain. And then at that point, I started adding other people to it. It's grown tremendously over the last couple months because I just started it in March of 2018. Wow. So from March of 2018 until now, it's over 8,000 members. Y'all are almost up to 8,500 members in that short of time. That's amazing, guys. Yeah, man. It just spread like wildfire. And talking about the keyboard warriors and stuff like that, I freaking love it whenever, Kyle, you get on there, and Howard, when you get on there, whenever there's some little damn troll on there just being a dickhead, and then y'all just whip his ass on the computer. <laughs> Sometimes I want to put that little uh, picture of Michael Jackson eating the popcorn saying, I'm just here for the comments. <laughs> Yeah, I posted one the other day on my personal page, and a guy commented and said that uh, he was just there for the potential arguments. What I love about it so much is that you you could have guys with 30, 35 years experience on there and guys that's got two days. And the guy with two days in asks a question, and he can get some amazing feedback. I mean, there, of course, there's the, the dipshits on there that do the trolling, but then there's guys who are like, you know what, shut your mouth. You're just being an asshole right now. This kid's here to learn. And I love that yeah. about him. You can always open that page and look and find information and find good training. And I'm going to cut in. That's one thing that I really like about that page because I'm a member of other groups and I won't name any of them, but Engine Company Resurrection, there tends to be very, very little trolling. Or And when it does happen, it gets shut down pretty quickly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I try to keep it well moderated. I'm the only admin on the page, to be honest with you. Me and my wife, in case I ever get put in Facebook jail, I can still run the page. But I'm the only moderator, man. And, you know, and I just try to... Uh, try to keep things in a positive direction. You know, I've only had to boot 18 people off the page out of 8,000, and I'm proud of that, man. It's not about, you know, finding people that disagree with me and booting them off the page. The only people that I've removed from the page are the guys that just really just are there to spread negative energy and talk down to guys for asking questions. You know, and the biggest thing that I've found, and it's actually opened my eyes, eyes up a lot, being able to talk to guys from around the country, is that, not everybody does everything the same way for their reasons. Uh, there's some pretty popular posts and polls that come out on the ECR page that's really a regional thing, man. You know, masking up on scene versus masking up on in the rig. So that's a big one. The smoothbore versus fog debate's always a big one. But there's so many of those posts out there, I just, I'm afraid it's going to get drowned down with all that, uh, the same stuff just being repeated. But that's what a lot of guys don't realize is that a lot of this stuff is regional. It's been bred into their culture, um, where they're at, and they just don't operate in a way that everybody is going to be able to operate. And some guys just need to understand that it's okay. It's not that they're wrong. They just do things differently. I'm sorry to interrupt you, buddy, but me and my buddy Gerald just had this conversation the other day where we were talking about just because it's different doesn't make it wrong. The guys at FDNY do stuff that's different than what we do down here in Texas. What Am I going to tell them that their tactics is wrong? No. I mean, we do things different. Maybe I'm not going to do it that way. There's some departments that they don't do a 360 whenever they do a structure. I mean, am I going to tell them that their whole everything they're doing is wrong? I might not agree with their tactics, but I'm still not going to shut them down and tell them that oh, everything you're doing is wrong. Yeah, yeah it's, it's very localized. I mean... If I pull up and the structure is so large that it's going to take me longer to do a walk around than does all the units responding to the scene to get on location, I'm probably not going to do a walk around. Someone can do a walk around 
actually a drive around. They could drive around to the C Charlie side, set up, and they've got eyes on the back of the structure. Am I not going to depend on that guy to give me a, a valid report on what's going on, on the back side of the building? I'm depending on him if I get in trouble to come get me. You're right. We've had two big structure fires here recently where you couldn't do a complete 360, and the, the captain on, on both occasions had to hand it off to the next guy and make their way back to the you know where they're going to make entry. So it was just it would have been five ten minutes to walk around the entire building. One was a church with an addition of a big rec room shop, and the other one was a, a warehouse that was fenced in on uh, the Bravo Charlie side. And we can Monday night quarterback everything. And you can sit there and be a keyboard warrior and watch these videos and be like, well, look at what they're doing. Everything they're doing is wrong. Or needle point and pinprick every little thing that they do. And that doesn't help anybody. Can we find flaws where we're flawed? Yeah, we can. But that's one thing that I just hate is, well, you just look at something that somebody else is doing and they do it for different reasons. Their culture is different than our culture. I mean, you got East Coast tactics and then you've got West Coast tactics. Putting eyes on four sides of the structure is never going to make a better difference than putting water on a fire. I'm a big fan of Andy Fredericks. And then whenever he's talking about the safest thing you can do on the fire ground is put the fire out. 90% of your problems will be solved with a fire out. That's right. Absolutely, man. And, you know, and there's a lot of Trump guys on the page that'll get in there and do some arguments and stuff on there about, you know, search and PDS and ventilation. And none of this is ever to, to downplay the importance of any of those operations. But just a little background on where we come from. We don't come from a place where that operates with dedicated truck companies. You know, the engine does it all. There's, And that just goes back to playing that regional thing, man. There's some debates out there that are so vague that anybody can pick one side or the other and show confidence on one side or the other on why the debate should be done this way or why this should be done that way. But really, man, without the knowledge base of somebody's background and their abilities on the fire ground, you can't really say you're doing it wrong or you should be doing it this way. They may not even be able to do anything, you know, towards your side of the debate. Exactly. I mean, we're, we're just, we're set up pretty much identical to you guys. We don't have a, a designated truck company. We've got two stations and we've got a six-man minimum staffing for the whole city. So we might pull up to a working structure and got six guys on. There's some things yeah. that we're not going to be able to do. I mean, we just don't have the staffing to accomplish the, all these certain tactics or strategies to use. We've got to do what works for us, and that's put the damn fire out. So typically we go interior every time, and also rescue is a big priority. Whenever you got two guys on the line, two guys dedicated to RIT, one guy outside on command and another guy running the pump, fire attack and, and rescue both happen simultaneously. Absolutely. You know, and I was just in a debate with a guy today, currently right now, he's probably chiming in on the page right now, <laughs> about um, attack-based attack base rescue, man. Nobody says that you have to do one or the other. And with manpower concerns like we have, I ride a three-man engine. I got me and my pipe man and my drivers outside. So if we pull up to a you know, a structure where I've got a possible victim trapped and fire burning, I'm not going to leave the fire burning unchecked. We're going to do a split search at that point, or he's going to hold the stairs if it's a two-story. You know, it all comes down to the competencies of your uh, engine company and what you're able to do. Do you have a brand-new guy on the knob that you wouldn't trust telling him to hold the stairs while I shoot upstairs and make the grab? Or do you have a seasoned pipeman, you know, that I can tell him, I'm going upstairs for the grab, hold the stairs for me. So, I mean, all that plays into the decisions there. I mean, if I've got a vague description of an incident like some guys post on there, it's really hard to say I would do it this way and the other ways are wrong, you know, because you don't know the, the capabilities of the other engine companies. You don't know the capabilities of the personnel that are riding those engines. It's easy to say, you know, uh, I'm going to split search and one guy's going to hold the stairs, but do you really have a competent engine company that would be able to do that? Can you leave the guy on the knob alone long enough 
or is he a two-week rookie straight out of fire school and all he knows is pencil? And the camera has a very limited scope that it shows to the viewers, and you also walk kind of a fine line about, well, or at least I think, you know, you can't say that they're wrong, but also can we not have a civil discussion about the tactics that are being put on display for all of us to see and also try and get in contact with some of the guys who are on scene like, yo, why did this happen? Why did it take a minute and a half before you VES? And we've got so many guys out there that they have to be right. So no matter what you say, I mean, they're going to shit on everything you do. This whole new safety thing that we've put ourselves before them, so much plays into a part of this new fire service that we're finding ourselves in. It's a problem. Yeah, it's a big one. I mean, that's a complete waste of people for me. If I've got, let's say, like your your example, for for instance, is you've got six people that are able to work when you get there with your whole assignment. So you've got two that are on attack. You've got two that you could utilize to stack up on that attack line and move it better by marrying those two companies. Once they get to the fire, that second company can break loose and do a split search of the structure close to the fire since most of the victims are being found in a room adjacent to the fire anyways. And then that third crew with the other two people can do then inner search on rooms that aren't involved away from the fire, remote from the fire. So you're occupying the inside with the most amount of people, so you're going to find somebody who's in there a lot faster. And removing someone and starting intervention is always going to be more successful than just lifting smoke and leaving them there for a longer period of time. We, we got to have two people outside. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's what they say, but, I mean, I, I guess it's only safe to ride on the back of a truck if it's carrying garbage in it, too. That's right. That's one thing is I don't know when it happened. I'm not old enough to remember the 70s or the 80s or anything like that, but I don't know when it happened, but this whole safety thing took effect at some point, and it just became overbearing where – there's just all these safety things that changed the, in my mind, it changed the fire culture to putting firefighters before them. Well, it's the whole, if, if, if we don't get there, we can't do anything. We've got too many decision makers that are, they're, they're overthinking. You don't have people like Jeff Shoup who have the experience who can base his decisions based off of things that he's done before. You've got people who aren't doing it and a lot of time on their hands to think about what they should be doing, and they're thinking about it making decisions based off of things that they have not done. And it's just ridiculous. That is one thing. And, I, and I'm, not, I'm not saying that safety doesn't have a part in the fire service. You can do things safer. I, and, I, and I'm not saying don't be safe, but don't be reckless. I mean, our job isn't necessarily a safe job. We've got things that we do, but what makes it a safe job is training and competency. And in my department, we do not vertical vent. I mean, we, we don't like to put anybody on the roof. It's not that it's dangerous. It's just that... It's one thing that we lack in training on. And whenever you lack in training in something, you automatically say, oh, no, we're not doing that. That's dangerous. Well, why? Because you're not comfortable doing it. Vertical ventilation is an is a extremely important important aspect, and we're fortunate enough to be close to the Houston Fire Department. And I mean, they are top of the line, vertical ventilation, search culture. I mean, I think the Houston Fire Department is one of the best fire departments in the world. And I, I'm lucky enough to know some captains there and great mentors of mine, Chris DeBello, Chief Mo Davis, you've got uh, Captain Philip Baird, a lot of people that I associate with that, I mean, you can bounce these things off of them where you may not be as busy as them, and you've got these things where you have this time on your hands to think about this stuff like I was talking about earlier. You bounce it off a guy who's done it. Jeff Shoup, I mentioned Jeff Shoup. There's things that people are doing that this man has done 
and he should get the credit for it. I mean, the, the guy, is, he's been there, he's done it. So take a word from people who have actually done it. Exactly. And and one thing, I mean, you, you come to my department, you come to Pampa Fire Department, you talk about vertical ventilation, and then you go to Houston Fire Department, and their view on vertical ventilation is completely different. It's that whole culture thing. It's like you got East Coast tactics, and it, let's even just use Texas East Texas tactics, South Texas tactics, and then the North Texas tactics. It's all different. It's all regional-based. Yeah, it is. And should it be? What is the structure types? I mean, if we're, if we're dealing with the same type of structure, should it be regional-based? I, I don't really think so. I, I think, think we should so. take these guys who are, we're running, these guys are running a lot of fires. Let's kind of emulate what they're doing and be successful with what they're already successful with. And, you know, go, to go back to, to this job's dangerous, you know, we want to talk about putting a RIT team in place and for the safety of, of all these firemen that are getting in a bind or in trouble, when it's not, that's a fallacy. It's not really happening. No one wants to do anything about the rate of heart attacks that we're having, the rate of cancer that we're having, the amount of suicides that are happening. No one wants to talk about that. They want to talk about putting these RIT teams in place to prevent a problem or, or repair a problem that's not even a problem. But let's fix the things that are our issues, physical agility standards, physical fitness standards, things like that in the fire service that we're really going to save lives and, and, and get some teeth into the subject and, and really make a difference. Chief, at your department, what do you expect of a new guy that just comes on the job? I don't expect anything out of him. I, spe- I expect it out of his captain. So we have phase testing. They have to uh, complete phases. There's four phases. And it's the captain's responsibility. I don't expect anything out of that new guy because that's a little lower rank than what I should be dealing with. So it's what his captain expects from him. And if he doesn't meet the expectations of his captain, then we go through the process of removing him from the department. So your captains, Kyle, you're one of them. So yes, sir. Whenever Chief puts this on you, you've got a new guy or whatever. And I mean, we're we're jumping everywhere, but it, but this is what we do. I mean, this is our podcast, so yeah, we, we jump no everywhere like this. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, what I see is that your chief has given the delegation of authority to the captain to do the training. The captain, Correct. he understands it's his responsibility to get this guy trained. You can't go up to your chief and be like, well, this guy's untrainable because that's back on you. Absolutely. You know, and that's the biggest thing about having experience based captains that are able to know the job and pass the job on to another guy. The biggest issue that we're having in our area is the growth of the area driving new promotions. So you're getting these guys in these positions that have two, three years on the job. But the benefit of that is we're able to stack captains that have 10, 15 years of experience on these shifts to not only mentor the new captain, but to assist in the training of the new guy. So going back to your question, my expectations of a new guy is I don't expect him to know anything. You know, I expect him to have the 400 and some odd hours that he was given by the Texas Commission on Fire Protection to get his certifications, but I treat him like he knows nothing. Very day one, I sit him down and I, I tell him what I expect of him. This is what I expect of you. This is how we do things here. This is how I want you to stretch. This is where I want you to stretch. You know, you are not to audible from this point until, you know, I tell you to. Default is front door for us. You know, so the drop point is going to be the A-side front door until I tell him otherwise. So you just got to break it down to the simplification of the job. Jeff Sheep says it best, the fire's complex enough. Don't add to the complexity by throwing wrenches into the game. Honestly, I expect him to know nothing. I take him out there and I show him what a screwdriver is and a pry bar and what the differences are. So that way, when he uses a screwdriver as a pry bar, I can say, hey, dumbass, we talked about this. You got a blank slate with each guy that comes in, and you can mold them into Absolutely. the firefighter your department needs them to be. Absolutely. And you have to be able to show these guys what you expect of them. You know, there's too many guys out there telling them, well, I want you to do this and I want you to do that. The best course of action that I've found is showing what you want. 
You want him to stretch a certain way, stretch it for him. You want him to cut a hole a certain way, cut it for him. You want him to pry a door a certain way, pry it open for him. So you got to be able to show these guys what you expect of them in the physical aspects of the job. And the biggest thing that I've found, and like you were saying, you know, if I bring a new guy to the chief and tell him that he's not performing well, I hold the responsibility for that. You know, that's a failure on my part, not a failure on the fireman's part. So did I give him enough opportunity or did I explain myself well enough or show to be able he can grasp the, the what I'm trying to, to show him or have him or expect him to do? You know, so now there are some guys out there that just don't get it that are not physically able to do what we're asking them to do. You know, but I will tell you that the majority of the guys that I've found their so-called problem children about ready to get out of here in any aspect of the job is that they just haven't been explained fully what's expected of them or shown different ways to accomplish different types of tasks. There's nothing on the other side of the equal sign. It's usually, well, that sucked, do it better. But there's nothing on the other side of the equal sign to say this is what you can do to prevent that. When you stretch, your lines are getting hung on your air pack. This is how you don't do that. Lean this way or step back before you pull the line. You know, shit like that, little tips and tricks. I've screwed up way more stretches than I've been successful with. And I'm able to build that Rolodex of events in my head and be able to share that with a guy. I've done this before, and this is how I used to do it. I don't do it that way because of this. So you have to have that experience-based training into the aspect of it as well. It's very important. And you've got to have some sort of personal accountability to that fireman and to your department. That's one thing that I think is is lacking. I don't I don't know where it started or where it come from, is having that personal accountability for things the way they are. If you've got a new guy and you just well, he's just untrainable. Well, that's because I mean that's on you. You've got to be able to provide that training and show this guy why. I mean, we've got firemen that You had a fireman that you couldn't train. Okay. And I think back to it all the time where I he was just too immature. This guy was too immature, and until he matures, he's not—he's not in the fire service now. You gotta have do- you gotta document that. So, as a fire chief, captain brings me a guy that says I, I can't train this guy. First thing I'm gonna do is get him to another captain to see if he can be trained. And if he can be, I'm going back to that captain and I'm gonna figure out what the hell went wrong. But if you bring me a guy with documentation, of what went wrong? You have a case. The guy doesn't have a job anymore. Because I have a responsibility to the citizens of East Montgomery County that we're going to put people on the street that are going to put them first and they're going to provide the best service possible. And to just ignore a problem child that can't learn the job, that's negligence. So he doesn't have a job if he can't grasp the concepts. That's top-notch leadership right there. I mean, you hold your captains accountable, but the guy's got to be accountable for himself too. I'm not saying that it's just completely the, the captain's the, you know, problem to deal with the guy. Because you can have a guy that he's been on the job a year and then I walk downstairs and he turns a running chainsaw at my other fireman and asks him how to turn it off. I'm going to lose my yeah. shit a little bit, you know. There's some guys that aren't meant to be in the fire service. Okay, we get that. When we try our damnedest. I mean, we still give them a fair shot. But we hold them accountable and we hold the captain accountable because if we don't, then you get these guys that they mess up one time. I mean, they've never seen it. They've never done something. They screw up one time, and then everybody at that point's like, "This dude's a fucking idiot. He's just stupid." And you're, and that that poor little bastard's like, "Y'all haven't even showed me." Well, that's a, that's another the, the other side of the coin. Is I want documentation because we have a tendency in fire service, from what I've noticed, is if we don't like a guy's personality, we want him out. We start creating reasons why he shouldn't be here. So I need some documentation to say, "Yeah, this guy isn't getting a job, and it's not a situation where people just don't like him." But you look at 
just a human in general, you come into this world as a baby and you are what your parents are. The way you're raised is the way you act. So if I have a, that's why I say I don't expect anything from the new guy as far as learning or performance right out of the gate. I expect him to be able to work on time and be willing to learn. That's what I expect. Outside of that, it is the officer and the crew's job to grow that individual into the firefighter that we want him to be at East Montgomery County Fire Department, him or her. I personally prefer getting a clean slate, man. You know, I, if I have a choice between a guy fresh out of fire school that's never had a job and a guy that's got three to five years on the on the job, I'll take the new guy. I'm with you, man, because they don't have bad habits formed already. You can mold that guy into whatever you want him to be. Absolutely. You know, Jason Fulmer said something to me one time that really hit home with me, is that we're a product of who gets to us first. You know, and I want to be that guy. I want to build that foundation for him because nobody was born to do this job, man. We were all built. So you just got to be able to be built by the guys that know how to do this job, that are experience-based with this. And really, it's, it comes down to, you know, knowledge-based of the job and, you know, being able to talk to somebody. 99% of all messages get lost in a shitty delivery. So if I can't talk to people, on, there's no way I'm going to be able to explain something to them. I fall victim of that. Sometimes my passion overrides logic, I should say, sometimes. <laughs> so I, I get, you know, a, a little, I, I have multiple times, and then I think about the conversation, and I'm like, damn it, I shouldn't have said that. Yeah, I'll call Cody out no, but, every time. Yeah. But speaking of, of the guys with the knowledge and where to learn, let's talk about uh, the FD Tactics training classes, guys. We just recently had Brothers in Battle on December come uh, to the Woodlands, Texas. Coming up, we have the Third Coast Fire Conference, which we're going to have a hot on the 11th, which will have a search and an engine hot. And then there's also a standpipe hot with Kevin Story, Captain Kevin Story, Station 8, downtown Houston. Uh, the dude is outstanding with all systems inside of high-rises, mid-rises, standpipe systems. That would be a don't-miss class. And the only thing left that we have on the hands-on side is the standpipe side. It's a three-day total class. So on the 11th is the hands-on. The 12th, you have Andrew Starnes coming in doing tactical thermal imaging. Lieutenant Joe Piccarelli from the FDNY is going to talk about engine company operations in the multiple and single-family dwelling. And then on the 13th, we have Chief Kurt Isaacson coming in. He's going to talk about water on the fire. And then Chief Mo Davis from the Houston Fire Department. He's going to do some leadership stuff. After that, in March, we're going to do a uh, – we have flowing and flowing. It's a kind of a – it's basically a quint class. Uh, I, and they're probably going to hate me for saying that, but uh, Magic City Truck Academy is coming in. They're going to do the truck side combined with our engine side. So it's going to be a two-day class. One day you do truck work, second day you do engine work. And the combination and idea behind it on my side, not saying it was their side, but um, it's, it's for the person riding on the quint. Like, what do you do if you roll up first? Do you do truck work or do you do engine work? We're not going to make that decision for you. We're going to go over both options, and you can decide when you get back to your area. In April, I have a box alarm fire academy. I got Chief Anthony Avilo coming in. He's going to do a lecture on day one. Then day two, you have several tracks you can choose from. There's a command track with uh, Chief Avilo. There's an engine track with FD Tactics. There's a search track with Captain Cristobello from the Houston Fire Department. There's a writ track with Chief Mike Phillips from the Houston Fire Department, which he's going to talk about some calls that he was involved in that involved Maydays. And then there's also a driver operator track with Captain Philip Baird. And David Hinojosa. So that's going to be a real good one. That's the one uh, me and Steven are actually trying to make that one. We got the hotel booked, and now it's just time to get the tickets to go. That's going to be a good one, man. There's The guys that are doing the tracks are very experienced in it, especially if you can get in that rip side with Chief Phillips. He's lived it. So he can talk about it, and he's been there. 
That'll be one of those situations. You're talking to somebody who has done it. Outside of that, we're, we're going to departments and teaching engine classes at the departments, mainly volunteer departments through Texas because the Forestry Service approved our class. It's 2604 approved, so any department that brings us in, they get reimbursed 100% of the cost, so it's free for them. We're definitely trying to get you guys up here. We have a uh, mutual aid agreement, an automatic aid agreement with our volunteer department here in Pampa, and uh, we were talking with their chief about it and definitely going to try to get you guys up here sometime this, this coming year. Well, we're excited, man. Just just let us know. We got, like I said, we got 12 classes scheduled through 2019 already. We'll be at uh, the Lift Brothers in Battle Conference in uh, Baton Rouge. We're going to be at the Lake of Ozarks Conference uh, in Missouri. And then the rest is just departments that we're doing. So we're pretty excited. We'd love to come down. Since we started this podcast, we've been teasing people with the smooth bore versus fog debate. And I can't think of anybody more fitting to kind of bring that up. Then you guys, it seems like almost every day there's a post from some new guy who wants to open it up all over again. And then I learned about your class that you do with FD Tactics and what you bring to volunteer fire departments and make guys think about the entire attack package from the type of hose to the type of nozzle to high pressure to low pressure. And it seems like the debate is more nuanced than just either or. That's all it is because, you know, it seems like the people who use the smoothbore the heaviest and they're kind of in your face with it, they either, one, don't use it at all because they're not allowed to and they're just, they want to use it, so they're trying to justify their reasonings, or two, they just start using it and it's new to them, so they're just in everybody's face about it. At the end of the day, it does not matter what nozzle you have on the end of the hose as long as the package is well with the hose. And if you have the ability to be able to open that hose line up and move it while it's flowing water. I don't care what type of pattern you have. It's the volume and the ability to move the line. So a lot of people think that we're just smooth bore, smooth bore, smooth bore, when in all actuality, we come to your department and we teach what you're using. Because if I come in and teach smooth bore because that's what I prefer and I do prefer that, when we leave and we're headed back to East Montgomery County, we're leaving you with whatever's on your truck, not with the smooth bores we bought for you to play with. Did everybody hear that? I hope everybody heard that. Like, let's put it into <laughs> yeah. this. It's all about the tactics. Exactly. <laughs> but it's, it's the full package. You can throw a smooth bore on a North American Dura 800 hose, it's not going to act well. The friction loss is too low, low inside the hose. So you got a low nozzle pressure, a low friction loss in your hose, get whipped right there at that three-foot mark where you're trying to hold the hose. I started this whole, and I'm, I say I started it, but I revamped the argument anyway about our attack packages and our hose and our friction loss and I got into this whole big debate and I barely even knew what the hell I was talking about. All I had was to learn from was whenever I promoted I was required to be an equipment operator and I got my TCFP certification for it and did the whole ifs the manual and the friction loss coefficients for that and using that I, I actually kind of lucked into our hose being really close to what the friction loss coefficient was because I, ha I had no idea and I'm still learning about this stuff guys I mean this is it, it seems like real simple stuff once you actually wrap your mind around it that each different hose manufacturer and, and they manufacture different types of hose but one thing in our fire department is and even myself I was like well shit all inch and three quarter hose is the same it's all going to have this same friction loss, and it's all built the same, and it all it's constructed from the same materials. I had that in my brain, and I imagine other guys in my department have that in their brain currently. And it's just learning about this stuff and seeing, okay, well, yeah, you can have inch and three-quarter hose that has seven pounds of friction loss per 50-foot section, or you can have that's 37. I mean, they make all different things, and it's for all different attack packages. 
It's not one size fits all. Yeah, that's the biggest uh, common thing that I find that, that people don't understand very well is that, number one, friction loss is directly related to your flow. You know, somebody saying my hose has, you know, 25 pounds friction loss. My answer to that would be, what are you flowing out of it? So we run True ID here in East Montgomery County, which is actually 177. So it's not even true 175 because the NFPA wouldn't allow Dennis Legear to do that. But our coefficient is 14.7, which is very close to the 15.5 that they'll teach you at the IPSA manual. At 50 feet of hose running 160, my friction loss is 18. At 185 running 15.16, my friction loss is 24. You know, so, I mean, that's where a lot of guys get confused there is that it's directly related to your flow and your attack package. You know, and that's not even talking about plumbing and what discharge you're using and friction loss in the actual truck in the first place. That's where a lot of guys go wrong is they take theoretical numbers and they don't go out and they flow, they don't flow their t attack packages and they just hope that they're getting what they're expecting to get at the end of the nozzle, put a pedo on it or a uh, line gauge and at that point, they're just scratching their head as to why their theoretical math didn't work. We have a policy written, and it said, for the inch and three-quarter, you'll flow 150 gallons per minute and have a PDP of 115. The policy, did it say 150? I thought it just... Oh, it said 150. Okay. Yeah, because that's what they were trying to use. And I was doing the math for, on it, and I was like, there's just no way. There's no way that, that works. It's so less than that. It was the feel of the hose. You could bend it easy, and that's kind of what kickstarted it for me. And I'm still novice in this stuff. I'm not preaching that I know everything about this stuff. So stop messaging me about it. I don't know everything. <laughs> Talk to Kyle and Howard. If you got people messaging you asking about it, just tell them to post a question on ECR, man. you got direct access to Dennis Legear, Chief I. Lots of guys that are well-versed in this kind of stuff. Jason Vestal's on there. Going back to the debate, I will tell you that up until the 1,000-degree mark, it's very similar on how both of those streams extinguish fire. They're very similar. It's where the separation lies is when you get up to the 1,000-degree mark in the upper ceiling level as to what the actual droplet is going to do. You know, and there's a lot of literature out there that you can read. There's a lot of guys in the, that are emotionally attached to the fog nozzle. You know, whether they were trained by Grandpappy and he, he tells them war stories about how they push fires uh, away from occupants, you know, locked in rooms or, you know, that they were protected inside of a, a building with this protection of the wide angle fog. Now, you had you had to have the left for life. because That's that's our whole thing is, oh, well, we just got to have left yeah. for life. And I'm like, that's a fucking yeah. left for lobster. Prove me where it worked. Yeah. Sorry to break it to you, but that's a fallacy, man. The biggest thing that I usually ask guys when they talk about that is, you know, why don't we use water curtains for exposure protection? We have water curtains we on actually, our engines. We actually do, and we use them. If you think about it as an equipment operator, you can use it. We've never used I've never seen them actually. I've used it one time. Really? Yep. Where? In a high heat situation, does it work? Yeah, high heat situation? No. Radiate, no. Radiated I, heat goes straight through it. Yeah. You know, I, I used it because I was told to. <laughs> Yeah, you got a fully evolved structure. You put a water curtain between that and the next exposure. Is you got to keep it from catching fire? Oh hell no! Not like you got to put so water directly on the fire. You're not going to put a little water mist curtain thing. It's not going to do anything. That radiant heat's going to pass right through it. It's going to heat up that siding or whatever that other house or exposure is. It's not going to be good. The main waterfront from ours anyway went about five feet, and then it was just like yeah. broken little sprinkles. Yeah, and that may be a flow thing. I don't know what your, your equipment is, but the point being is if it won't work outside between an exposure, what makes you think it's going to work in a hallway? There's a lot of literature out there that will explain it with heat release rates and megawatts and that I couldn't sit here and recite to you, but there's a lot of guys that are, 
they're really well versed in that kind of stuff, but I usually just refer people to the quantitative approach on selecting nozzle flow rate and stream written by Jason Vessel and Eric Rich. Jason Vessel's on the ECR page. Uh, he comments every now and then. He's accessible. Honestly, going back to what I was saying, man, it's, it's preference up into the 1,000-degree mark, and at the 1,000-degree mark, you really have the big separation. But the mechanics of both of those nozzles have a lot of advantages and disadvantages as well. And there's guys about everything, like we talked about earlier, where they're 100% smoothbore, only smoothbore, 100%. And then there's guys with fog nozzles that are the same way, one extreme to the other. And then I kind of find myself in the middle where I want, you know, I understand that fog nozzles have their benefit in the fire service. I mean, it's a good tool. Every tool's a good tool to have in your tool bag. I just hate saying that this is the only way. This is the only way. I just want to have the ability to choose. I want one line yeah. with a smoothbore, and I want one line with a fog nozzle. I want the ability to choose. Yeah, and the safe compromise for that would be to get a slug tip. But, I mean, there's disadvantages to having the slug tip as well. And, you know, and don't get me wrong, we're not all smoothbore. i got a fog nozzle on my bumper line, but that's where it lives. So I can think of four situations I would use it for. A dumpster fire, which I have no idea of the contents of it. Um, I could have a vehicle fire with a three-dimensional hydrocarbon fire. I need to apply, you know, Class A or Class B foam or I've got an LPG leak. You know, that's why I have it on my truck. You know, I'm not going to be totally throwing it in the dumpster. Our lines are strictly smoothbore other than the bumper line, man. Our, our large big lines for the two-and-a-half attack packages, the, uh, we run inch and an eighth and inch and a quarter. Our, both of our transverse beds are seven-eighths and 15 sixteenths. But there's uses for us, man. You know, uncompartmented, tightly sealed areas, attic fires, you know, garage fires with no victims inside, absolutely, if I can use the steam to my advantage, it's definitely a benefit. But not something that I would want to go into battle with, man. You know, so I want a tool with me or a weapon selection, so to speak, that is going to work instantaneously to change the environment in the worst case heat release rate situation. I equate it to a law enforcement officer carrying around a 22 pistol all day long on patrol in hopes that all of his perps are going to be small midgets. That's what it equates to. And then when he comes across a green mile looking dude, he's going to be Sadly mistaken at his weapon choice. I used that in a damn argument once, and they, like, shit on me. Everybody was. I was in the Army and everything, and I talked about going into battle with, you know, I could go into battle with the 22 or go into battle with the Mark 19. I'm picking the Mark 19 all day long. I can always scale back, but I want to go in armed to the teeth because i rather, you know, I'd rather be ready for if shit hits the fan than try to catch up to it when it already happens. You know, it's uh, the smoothbore nozzle is a very greed-based attack package and greed base is not a negative aspect of it you know water on the floor has value man you know so i want to stream that when i open it it's going to be in a form to where i can pierce the the higher temperatures at the ceiling and, and produce a fall down rate that's going to cool the fuel flame interface where it needs to be so I don't, i'm not necessarily concerned with stopping flashovers that are right now occurring i'm concerned with preventing flashovers that's my main mind frame is i want to prevent the flashover from happening kyle you talked earlier on in the episode about social media being a good thing and a bad thing for the fire service and certainly there's plenty of opposing tactics and views and strategies uh, that people have and you have a large file collection for your page how do you vet the information and where do you get these articles how do you decide which literature you want your readers to put out there or to access so actually anybody can add anything to the files page man i know i don't put a uh, there's no censorship or anything i don't think i've ever deleted anything from the files page uh, I think the only thing I've ever deleted was duplication. Like if a guy posts an article in there that is already there, I'll delete that one. But 
Guys are more than welcome to put anything they want on that file page. Honestly, these are just articles that I have found in my searches and sharing my Google Drive with guys that other things that I've read that I just really enjoyed the information. I really wanted to share the information, and I really believe in the information. So the files page, like you say, is pretty stacked, man, and I try to add to it at least once or twice a week. You know, when I'm on shift up here, I spend about at least two to three hours reading articles. You know, I read between 10 and, and 50 articles a day when I'm on shift from the time when we stop daily duties and stuff. Basically, it was either articles that were recommended from mentors in the fire service to me, or I just discovered on my own, man, because I didn't have a senior man. That's the biggest thing in our area. We don't have a whole lot of senior men in our area. We're a young department, and I didn't have anybody to look to in order to gain this knowledge base from, so I had to seek them out, man. I may not know these guys personally, but some of them I do. You know, I, I know Brian Brush and Dennis Laguerre, guys that I've met at these conferences that I can call on and ask them questions and, and get some advice from these guys. But uh, my mentors are Andy Fredericks, Jay Camella, Jeff Shoup, that I haven't really spent a whole lot of time with, Gary Lane. You know, guys that I'm able to read things that they have written, but not necessarily know them personally. So I wanted to be able to get guys the ability to do that, that you can still grasp the information from these guys senior guys that's been through it and done it and have the the actual tactics and abilities to prove it but you don't necessarily need to be next to these guys because there's a lot of guys out there that don't have senior men i fell in that same boat we're a young department i mean and we're going to be even more younger with uh the retirements that are going to happen i mean i promoted to a driver with two years of experience in after two years of experience i did a year and i became the senior driver on my shift I've been in the fire service for five years now, and when you're thrown into that position without having necessarily the experience or the knowledge, you've got to learn shit right now. So I grabbed anything and everything I could, fire service material to read. And one thing, I don't know if you had to deal with it, Kyle, but which I, I had to deal with is whenever I brought this stuff up, this new knowledge and stuff that my, my department wasn't doing, I brought it up and they're like, well, you can't get everything from a book. Yeah, I, yeah. Know, I know that, and that sucks, but, I mean, that was a position I was in. Hey, you got to go out and vet the material, man. You know, just because you read it doesn't make it so. But yeah, I agree with that to an extent. I happened to work for one of my mentors, man, so I was able to gain a lot of a lot of knowledge base from him as well with uh, Chief Ronwald being at the range. He was able to clue me in on a lot of stuff that's really tried and true. You really have to vet some of this information coming out. You know, you really have to vet what you're reading. You know, not only just take it for what it is, go out and practice it. If I'm reading an article and a guy tells me that a nozzle reacts this way on a certain stick of hose, I'm going to go put that nozzle on that stick of hose and see if he's full shit or not. You can't really, you know, take everything for face value, but, you know, what I post on the file page is things that I enjoy reading. And that's just me personally. The majority of those files that are in there were added by me. There's another guy named Mike DeWalt. There's a guy named Chuck Hammond that's going through trying to make a full-color version of the Book of Andy. I don't know if you guys ever read the Book of Andy. It's by a collection put together by Gary Lane of Andy's work, uh, Andy Fredericks. So Chuck Hammond's trying to put together a full-color version of the Book of Andy. So I never really try to censor anything that's on there. But what I post personally is something that I, I want to read. If I read it and I find it interesting and I agree with the sentiments that the guy's saying, I post it out there for people to read. One thing I noticed about the fire service is that there is a lot of reading if you involved if you want to be a competent firefighter. There's a lot of things you got to go and do hands-on. And whenever you read, 
you learn all sorts of techniques or hear of things that you might not have otherwise thought of to go out and try and put to the test and see if it works or not. I've always likened the fire service to getting a doctoral degree. My sister got her doctorate at an Ivy League and and my whole family was impressed. And here I am just a little firefighter. And then I show up on the job and there's just stacks of books and all sorts of different tracks or, or, or directions you can take in the fire service. And so that's kind of how I see it is if you're a dedicated firefighter, your nose is going to be in the books and you're going to be constantly reading and getting information. That's just part of the job. Especially if you're going to be plugged into the fire service and definitely having you guys on here and the guys that we've talked to and the ECR page. I mean, if you're plugged into the fire service and we hope everybody is, but we know better because we know there's guys out there that are just, are just there. But whenever you've got plugged in guys that are trying to learn and trying to do this stuff, that's what this is for. They can take just a little bit of whatever you got or you, whatever you read and you can apply it to your fire department and you take what you read and you actually put it into action and see if it works. There's really two kinds of guys on this job. There's guys that are into the job and that are on the job. I think Salka wrote a great article about that. Definitely got to read, man. You know, got to get out of your bubble. It's another mistake that guys make is that, the you know, we've done it this way forever. Why should I do anything different type mindset? You know, reading from, you know, guys around the country, just even talking to guys around the country, you can open your mind frame up to some different tactics and strategies that may end up working well in your department. So there's really not a whole lot of different fire buildings out there. There's different types of construction, but we're running fires in very similar buildings that they are around the country. And it just kind of blows my mind that guys have that much different tactics. And it just it's kind of a mind blower. But try to share as much as you can, man. You know, a, a good friend of mine told me a long time ago that, the three-hour rule is something to live by on, on shift. You spend an hour in the books, an hour on the drill ground, or an hour in the weight room. I try to live by that three-hour rule every time I'm on shift. It's simple. It's easy to remember. It's beneficial. Howard, I'm going to change tracks here a little bit. Could you tell us about your territory, and is it true you guys don't have hydrants? And if so, what do you all do? We have hydrants, but we only have a very small amount. We just purchased a tanker, which is 3,300 gallons, and we have a second one. So on our initial box, we had 9,000 gallons of water coming. Our territory is very mixed. We have commercial, we have estate homes, we have single-wide trailer houses, we have people living in tents. So, I mean, to explain our demographic would be, it's everything. The only thing we don't have is anything over three stories. So a lot of the times you'll see us get into a conversation with somebody on the mask up, not mask up, topic and we don't serve that territory so if i was going to a building that's five floors and i've got to travel upstairs then yeah i would do what they're talking about but for me the mask up situation is you know we're pulling up to a one-story two-story structure we're going immediately to work but to explain my demographic it's a little bit of everything except for mid and high runs okay let's talk about that masking up thing do you do it in the cab do you do it outside I know with our department, I was never told one way or the other, and I think it depends on the captain. And as a new firefighter, as you go between shifts and stations, you've learned that everybody has their own expectations of you. So what may work with one captain doesn't work with another. But as far as masking up, I've always been given the leniency to decide. And typically, I put it on in the cab because I'm the nozzle guy. I know what my job is. I'm not going to be doing the 360. I'm going to put my mask on and get ready to work. Yeah, man, I've always put it on in the cab. My mask is transparent. I can see through it. And it has a better field of vision than my enclosed motorcycle helmet has when I wear it going 80 miles an hour down the road on a motorcycle. There's the fog up issue, but, I mean, I think it's a hard set for us because we're in Texas and we don't have an extreme issue with fogging up, just talking to other people. But we do, we defog our masks. Uh, We use dish soap. You put a little dish soap, drop a dish soap inside the mask. You spread it with your fingers. 
and it creates a layer across the, uh, the mask of the film of the soap, so it's unable to fall. I definitely do it in the cab. I look at the situation as in if my house was across the street from this fire station I'm sitting in right now, and it caught on fire, and I pulled out, and my kid was in the second floor of my home, would I want to be in the front yard putting my mask on? And the answer for me is no. I want to get out of the truck and go immediately upstairs and get my daughter. Yep, and you just blew Cody's mind right then and there. I don't think he's ever heard that about the dish soap. I haven't. That's that's new information for me. I've never heard of the dish soap. I picked it up from uh, Chief Kelly Fisher, again, from Houston Fire Department. That's a big thing that's directed my career is guys from Houston. And uh, I think I think he picked it up from Captain Dale Jenkins. If y'all haven't heard of Dale Jenkins, you need to look into him. The most brilliant guy I've ever seen with vertical ventilation. Chief, I got a question. I'm, I'm gonna. It was one of Kyle's. I want to throw it at you. Tell us about the decision between rescue versus fire attack by the first two engine. Yeah, man. For me, there's nothing you can do better than put the fire out. If you look into it, the majority of victims are being found in a room adjacent to the fire. So a typical layout for a structure fire for me is I'm going to assign the first engine to attack the fire because I want to stop the fire where it is and I want to maintain the survivable space. And then I want to occupy the inside. So the second assignment typically will be the second crew's getting on that attack line, following it to the fire and starting their search at the fire because most victims are found adjacent to the fire. And then the third in assignment, we have water on the fire, so I'm not really worried about this bullshit of fire traveling through the structure. What do they call it? I think they call it a flow path. I'm not worried about that. So our third assignment typically is to then enter search or enter through a window and search beyond the door on the opposite end of the house. So we're just occupying the inside. We're putting as many people inside the structure as we possibly can with the first move putting water on the fire. And it's not to put the fire out. The attack is to uh, augment the search and support the primary search. Because the number one priority is to save lives. That's it. We're there to search the structure, and we can't search the structure comfortably without water on the fire. And you do everything when you're more comfortable doing it. You do everything better when you're more comfortable. So getting the water on the fire and getting the line in place to where it's between the search and the fire, the search crew's more comfortable and they search a lot faster. So the primary function of the attack-based rescue is just to support the, the search crew. I did not make attack-based rescue up. That's something that I, I basically stole from Kurt Isaacson. That's the first person I heard say attack-based rescue. And I mean, everything the dude puts out is just phenomenal. Like I said earlier with us, limited staffing, that's essentially what we have to do at every fire that we go to. Before we even knew what the name was, that's how we operate because that's, that's just, all we can that, yeah, do. We're not going to we, do. I, we, we can't throw dedicated rescue guys alongside the the fire attack line. You got to do both and and we go straight to the fire. Like you said, the area of most danger. One of my fires I ran whenever I stepped up as captain is we pull up and I did a little quick 360 of the fire. We went in, me and my firefighter went in. I kind of helped him get to the room that was on fire. He started putting it out. I started search and rescue, my primary search. I mean, that's just how we have to do it. Split crew functions. I mean, it, it's big in the world that we're in. We have to take the things that the urban departments are successful at and apply them to our districts, but we can't emulate it. we got to take and look at the situation and say, how can I do that similar with my manpower? And split functions is exactly how we do it. Like you're saying, you may have to attack the fire, and once you get to the fire, you're going to leave one guy on the fire, and you're going to search. You're a lot more comfortable doing it because now water's on the fire. You wouldn't be so comfortable by yourself with the fire still free burning. Yeah, that would suck. Yeah, it definitely would. I mean, I'm not saying don't search if the fire's still burning. I carry a water can in my chief's car, and if I'm there by myself for an extended period of time, 
I'm probably going to go in with the water can. One discussion we've had at our department that one of the chiefs brought up was how would we apply VES with our current response model? We have the six guys. We're very rarely at you know full staffing for the day, and we have to have a dedicated RIT who doesn't just sit out in the yard and hangs around. I mean, they're out also doing a 360 and trying to soften and, and create egress points, you know, contributing information to IC. But as far as doing VES, if over the radio we hear that, yes, there are certain, they're definitely confirmed victims. There's children up in the upstairs bedroom. You know, yeah, rescue takes priority, and we talked about that. But a lot of these structure fires, we don't know if somebody's in. We don't have that information until we go in and, and find it out ourselves. So typically we just go in with the hose line and we forego VES unless we have good information that there's people inside. I think VES is the safest tactic you can apply on the fire ground. And I can't tell you guys what to do, but I, I think if y'all would apply that scenario and utilize your RIT team to search those uninvolved areas opposite of the fire, they're covering square footage that the split search can't cover when they start close to the fire. So all we're doing is minimizing time. When seconds count, we count seconds. They're minimizing time because they're getting in there and they're searching opposite of the fire, and they can clear that area pretty quick. If something goes to shit, I guess y'all can pull them out and deploy them as a RIT team. But for me, the RIT team, the first deployment on the RIT team is whatever crew's closest to the person calling the mayday inside the structure. If that's the attack crew calling the mayday, then guess what? The person that came off the line and was doing a split search, they're bumping up and they're moving and they're going to be now the RIT team. That makes sense. I haven't considered Mind any of this. blown. <laughs> wow. There's no other way to reduce the time in a better sense than deploy the crew that's closest to the person calling the mayday. Now you're going to send somebody who's been sitting out in the front yard with their thumb up their ass and probably their mask on, and you're going to send them into a situation that never looked at the layout of the structure, and now they got to go find the people calling the mayday. When you could deploy the person closest to them, and they already know the general layout of the structure because they've been inside operating. And this is as a result of you putting in as many people as you can to occupy that structure. That's right. And if you have to have a RIP team outside... Now they're the RIP team for the person that's going after the, the mayday because it, the, the traditional way of operating is you deploy the RIP team from the outside to go get the mayday, and now there's nobody outside to save them if they get in trouble. And hopefully by then you have callback personnel on scene ready to go, more hands to throw at the, at the fire. If you don't have guys standing out in the street waiting for a job to be assigned to them, you ain't got enough people on that scene. And it's, it's nice <laughs> now having our, uh, our volunteer station that we have that come in as our automatic aid it's nice usually they show up with seven to ten ten people i mean a few a handful can go inside and go interior but the other guys i mean pulling hose and doing all sorts of stuff and then having that extra that extra writ set up with them whenever they show up we're getting to a point where it's going to be good but i'm but what i want to go back to is is what we were talking about is if i get my firefighter and i get him set up to start attacking the fire and i start my search and rescue and he calls a mayday what am i just not going to go no, right. you're, you're, you're going to go. I'm no matter what I try to stop me from going and getting him. I'm not going to go out. I'm, I'm already inside. I have a better idea than the writ does of where he's absolutely at. And even worse than that, there's a lot of departments out there that will remain unnamed for their protection that their policy is that everybody who's not on the mayday to change the channel. Why on earth would you want to take the guys operating in the next room over and put them on another damn channel where you can't hear the problem? Obviously, I understand that you don't want the guy making the mayday change the channel, but why move everybody else? The guys that are going to affect that rescue of that fireman that's in that situation where he either is in a situation where he's he's in trouble or he thinks he's in trouble, because that's when we call mayday phase, right? We don't wait till we're in trouble if I call mayday. If I think I'm in trouble, I'm going to call mayday. I mean, I'll be the guy that sits at the kitchen table and say, yeah, I'm the guy who called the mayday, but 
I can sit here and fucking tell you about it because I called the Mayday. Exactly. You're going to take the guys that are in the closest proximity to the guy that's in trouble, and then you're going to have them change radio channels to where now they can't hear anything about what's going on and how to facilitate that risk. You know, it's it's crazy, man. Some, yep, some tactics. I mean, it's insane. If I'm already right there, I'm going to go try to affect that rescue. I'm not going to change channels. I'm already there. I don't think we would change channels over at our no, incidents. No, we, we wouldn't. Maybe larger departments. I'm not sure, but I, I don't think we would just because of, I don't know, we've never trained on it. So <laughs> There's that. <Yeah. laughs> All right, Kyle, let's talk about that Oath Keepers conference. Man, Oath Keepers was one of the best conferences that I've attended so far. So we were uh, flowing in one two-story vacants. It was uh, essentially very similar to the flowing and throwing that we're doing here in Texas, but we were able to flow in vacants, man. And that was probably one of the best conferences that I've attended this year. And I got real close with the guys that run that conference, Chris Gilpin, Matthew Kidd, Jason Palmer, Matt Doney, Justin Coffey, all the guys that are running that thing, Sean Hughes, the guys from Shut Up and Train. And the biggest thing about that conference is that they are pushing aggressive tactics. And what they do is not for the weak, <laughs> you know. So you're going to be there and you're going to put in some fucking work, man. You know, and what I really liked about it is that was the first conference of this year that I was able to attend that we were able to flow in vacants. You know, we were making stairwell pushes on switchbacks and straight runs with carpet and hardwood flooring. You know, so, I mean, you take a guy that all he knows how to do is push hose through an empty burn building, and he's lost when he gets in the structure or moves 900 miles an hour. So it was really cool to be able to, to flow water with those guys, and I just got personal with them, honestly. They were doing uh, – part of it was hose stretches, and one of the hose stretches they were doing was the flat load, and we we pretty much run the flat load. We run the shit out of the flat load where we're at, and we have a pretty intricate way of running the flat load. Thanks to Chief Ronwall, he kind of came up with this stuff, but uh, it's what we teach in our engine classes. And I offered, you know, I could really expand your flat load portion of this conference. And uh, after talking with Gilpin and a couple other guys there, they want to bring me on and add me to the instructor group to help them out with that. We just basically hit it off, you know, but the Oath Keepers, man, it's full of a bunch of guys that your mom warned you about not to hang out with. All right. <laughs> when you were My kind kid. of guys. You know, so, so these are the fucking guys that you want to hang out with. You oh, know, yeah. Contrary to what your mom wants to tell you, you know, but it's just full of a bunch of meat eaters, man. You know, and I, I was really taken back as the experience level and the realistic nature that the drills were able to add. And uh, it was honestly the cheapest conference that I had attended that year. And that's one of the things that they pride themselves on is they keep the registration fees so low that they're able to provide that training at a low cost. So for a guy who's never attended a conference and has never attended a hot training, what all does he have to bring with him? So basically, you're just going to bring your bunker gear, man. You know, so bring your gear, bring your gloves, bring a couple sets of gloves. Probably couldn't hurt to bring knee pads. You're going to be dragging a lot of cotton, man. The benefit to that is that you get to use your equipment. So there's some conferences out there that you don't even get bunker gear on, you know, so you get to use your equipment. I would recommend bringing your own mask. So if you have a particular mask set up at your department, I would talk to them first just so you're wearing your mask, man. You know, the, the more realistic that you can get, the better. Last thing you want to do is use a different air pack and get good with that air pack or, you know, making maneuvers with the air pack and then go home, you got a different one. So would you bring your you own air that? pack? Uh, you can, you know, obviously you're going to be bringing it on a plane. So TSA may give you some shit about that, but yeah, I would just contact them. There's a lot of departments that help out with the training there locally. 
and uh, you may be able to work out if you've got a particular air pack, like if you guys are using draggers or some shit, they may be able to scrounge one up for you. But honestly, those small conferences like that were the best that I've attended, man. I attended 13 this year, and I would take small conferences like Oath Keepers and Mile High and Chesapeake Bay in Maryland. I would take small conferences like that over FDIC any day. You know, you get the real one-on-one. Those are the kind of conferences that me and Steven are interested in. I mean, of course we're interested in FDIC. I mean, we'd love to go to the show floor and do all that shit, but that shit's expensive as hell. And then man, it's like Disneyland, man. Yeah, and there's so I mean, there's so much stuff there, but the getting the hands on and getting the knowledge like in your face type shit, that's what I'm interested in. And that's what I love about uh what about FD tactics that you guys have. That's in your face shit. Yeah, well the benefit of what we do is we teach what we know, man. You know, we're not teaching no whiz-bang shit out there that we don't practice at home. Everything we teach in our engine class is exactly what we do on the fire ground. So we take what we have been able to perfect and what we've been able to, to establish that works really well for us, and we just pass it on to other people, man. You know, we teach the flat load. We teach how we run the flat load. Uh, we run the flat load. We pull it five different ways. We teach all that during our engine class. I usually handle that end of it. Chief usually handles the bundles and the two-and-a-half. We all kind of come together and do nozzle mechanics. And then we just start running drills. But our engine class is not made up of what we don't do. There's a lot of guys out there teaching shit that they don't, they're not either, A, not able to perform at their department due to the fact that their attack packages or their protocols and SOPs won't let them. But they'll go out there and they'll, they'll make you pay to learn some shit that they don't even do at home. So that's one of the big benefits of what we do is everything we do, we practice. This is how we run a fire at 3 o'clock in the morning, and we're going to show you how we're effective. And to the listeners, this is the guys that you, I mean, you want to learn stuff like this. Whenever you're going and thinking about going to a conference and going to learn, do a little bit of vetting and see. I mean, obviously with you guys, you're doing it. I mean, y'all are doing it on every fire. This is the shit that y'all do. Y'all are really good at this because you do it. And of course, if I'm going to, if I'm going to go pay $600 to listen to some guy talk about nozzle forward stuff. You're just throwing out an example. Like an example. Somebody that doesn't actually even use it at their department, then... I mean, 600 bucks for not even getting Rush's class or Aaron Fields' class. You're right about that. There's a lot of people that's taken from – I've never been to a nozzle forward class, so I don't teach this stuff, but I, I do see there's a lot of people teaching classes, and they're stealing from these guys. They are stealing from these guys. And that's why we try to focus in on our class mainly being from the pump panel to the door because I feel like not a lot of people are hitting that right now, and we're trying to hit on the deployments because I think that's a missing piece. Nozzle forward has the interior handled. Jeff Shoup has the interior portion handled. He also has the deployments handled as well. I, I will say that. But you're right. You need to look into and vet these guys. Don't just pay money to go to a class. We work for East Montgomery County Fire Department. You can look us up and, and see what we're running. We do run fires. And we're using and teaching what we do on fires. You know, I personally went to 70 fires this year. So, it's not a situation where we're trying to take and, and something that somebody's developed and steal it and, and make money off of it. And that is happening. That'd be like myself. Like currently with my department, I'm, I watch Aaron Fields and these guys on, on YouTube. I see this, the nozzle forward stuff and I like it. I really do. So I try to learn as much as I can about it. And then I try to show my guys. But if I started charging people to come watch, like that's shitty. And people are doing that. They are. They're, they're taking it. And, and I'll tell you, it, it's like tattoos. Cheap tattoos ain't good, and good tattoos ain't cheap. Exactly. If you want to learn the nozzle forward tactics, go to nozzle forward. That's the best place to go. That's the original. That's where you're going to get it. That's where you're going to learn how to do it right. All right, Kyle. Let's talk about Smoothbore Cartel. Smoothbore Cartel was actually started by a uh, battalion chief that works here at the department. 
and essentially it was started as kind of a fuck you to all the people that, that really looked down upon us about our tactics that we were changing up. And we were kind of the redheaded stepchildren and still kind of are of the county. We made the move to all smoothbore. There's a lot of companies around us that are making that move. But originally, you know, we were pretty much the only show in town in, in the Montgomery County side over here that was running all smoothbore. And we just got a huge negative attitude towards us. To complement that, we're pretty brash about how we approach things on the fire ground. And we're not really conservative on how we boast about certain things. So, I mean, some of it was warranted, but essentially it was made as a joke. If we're going to be singled out and, you know, the nobody likes us, we don't care type of attitude and the black sheep of the fire service, you know, we're going to embrace it. So it was made up out of that attitude. The first thing that was ever made was the patch. And essentially we just embraced the thought process of it. And he made the patch. So about the same time that he made that patch, I started ECR. And that kind of segued into me starting the training scholarship that I have right now. And I needed funding, man. So I told him, I was like, man, I'm starting this page up. I go to conferences almost once a month. I bet you I could push this shit to guys out there. But if you would, give me a kickback on this stuff so I can send guys to training classes. It originally started to where I would get a dollar for my scholarship for every item that he sold. So honestly, everybody thought I owned the company anyway because I was the best salesman. I was pushing the shit out of this apparel, you know, because I got a dollar for every item that I sold from it. My battalion chief, he's got a large family. He ended up getting hurt. He had surgery, and he was just kind of getting too much for him to manage the company, and he was interested in selling it. And I was like, well, man, everybody thinks I run the company anyway, so I'm down. So I purchased the company. And uh, I still use it to sponsor the training. I give swag for every raffle that I do. So instead of the financial side of it being donated to the scholarship, I just add swag to every raffle that I do for free to put the, the apparel in guys' hands. Can you tell us more about this scholarship? Because I think it's a really neat idea to help fund the training. You're, you're kind of spreading the knowledge. You have obviously have the means or you, the drive to go out to these conferences yourself. Why did you decide to help out other people as well? I do have the ability to do that with my schedule. We work at 4896, so I can do a trade with a guy, and I can be off for 10 days and attend these conferences. Financially, it is a big investment, so anybody that wants to go to 13 conferences out there, be prepared to spend about <laughs> 15 to 20 grand. Hopefully my wife's not listening to this. <laughs> but really, the biggest driving factor was going to conferences and seeing the same guys. You know, So I'd see the same guys in Maryland or Portland or Oklahoma or Ohio or Denver, and I'd see the same guys at these conferences. I started thinking, you know, it can't be that hard to raise funding to send a guy to a conference. And really, what I wanted to do was I wanted to secure funding to where I would have to do any type of raffle or fundraising or anything like that. That's the main goal and still is. Essentially, I just started thinking about it, and this is another brainchild of one of those talks uh, looking for fires with my battalion chief at the time, is that, man, you know, if I could get a piece of equipment, or something to raffle off, I can just use the money that I get off of that raffle to send a guy to a conference. So really the, the biggest things, the biggest question mark with all that is the airfare. So registration's always set. Hotels are always set for that particular one so I can budget for it. But, you know, the airfare is the biggest question mark. So I always give myself a little bit of cushion for the airfare. But man, it's it's really not a, that big of a hassle, and it kind of blows my mind why guys, other guys aren't doing it. Uh, as it sits right now, what I'll do is I'll get either a tool donated to me or I'll build into the cost uh, of the purchase of a tool and then raffle that off. And then the same guys who bought in for the raffle for the tool, I'll send one of them to a, a conference. Sometimes uh, I'm able to get the registration fees donated. 
Like the next one I got coming up, this is some super secret shit. Nobody knows about this yet. Super yeah. secret squirrel next shit. Next one I got coming up is, uh, is a conference in Virginia that Benjamin Martin gave me a free registration for. That's the next one coming up. It's going to be uh, Jeff Shoot. It's going to be like a command leadership class up there. There's about four or five different structures up there. I've got a fire hall that I'm going to auction or uh, raffle off for that to pay for the trip. You know, so sometimes guys give me free registrations and I'm able to bring the price down. So it's a not-for-profit. I'm not looking to make any money off of these raffles. I just want to send a guy to a quality training class. The biggest one that I've able, I was able to do was PDX, the one that just closed. So that one was a $4,000 that, that was four grand to actually put together to do all that. Because I gave a door prop away. I gave two grip kits from Fire Mall. The trip to PDX was about twelve to fifteen hundred bucks. I think it was like thirteen hundred bucks altogether. So it took four grand to put that thing together, and uh, that was the largest one that I've done. And I've only budgeted to send, you know, one guy to training. So Chief Ike has given me registrations in the past. He gave me two registrations to water on the fire. So I mean, I was able to send two guys to water on the fire. But that's really the biggest thing, man. Is that there's not a lot of guys out there that are financially able to go to conferences all year, but there's so many guys out there that are hungry for training and hungry for knowledge, man. And I just wanted to be able to, to do my part to leave it better than I found it. You know, get these guys the ability to get out to these classes. And if I can ex- affect change to one guy on a crew, I can affect change to a company. And if I can affect change to a company, I can affect change to a battalion. And if I can affect change to a battalion, I can affect change in a whole fire department and start a culture change. And that's the biggest thing, man, is just trying to leave this job better than you found it, man. That's incredible. And if anybody out there is listening and you own a company in the fire service and you also agree with spreading the knowledge. It's a fucking call out. You've been called out. Yeah. Get in contact with (laughs) Kyle and uh, Howard and make sure you help them out because I think it's I think that's awesome I wish more people were doing that uh, and like I said fire service it's it's like a doctorate degree I mean it's expensive to get your doctorate degree oh, yeah. there's lots of you know things you got to do books you got to buy and, and live on a stipend and, and you're broke and that's kind of how it is here we're hungry for knowledge and you got guys who would kill for the opportunity to go listen to Kurt Isaacs and speak or go see the brothers in battle you know people who are sick and tired of going to their department where the culture is stagnant or just dying. monotonous and dying. And what you're doing, man, is awesome with Smooth War Cartel, and we're and we definitely want to offer to be able to plug you, man. We want to be able to plug you on our uh, on our podcast. Definitely get that out there. You're doing something amazing. I appreciate it, man. You know, there's a lot of good companies out there that have really been real supportive. Fire Mall Tools has been a real big one. The guys from Fire Mall have been super supportive. They actually contacted me. Uh, right after I put my first video out talking about what I wanted to do. And they were very supportive. They gave me a grip kit and a T-shirt pack for every single raffle that I do. It's like a $59 value. They give me some discounts on fire malls so I can buy, I can buy a custom fire mall to raffle off. Firefighting Depot has also been very supportive on everything that we're trying to do. Peter and Brett and the guys at Firefighting Depot have been super supportive. There's really great companies out there that really believe in this mission, man. My biggest thing that I'd like to do and what I'm looking to do right now is turn ECR into a 501c3. You know, if I get a 501c3, I can qualify for tax deductions for these big companies. Then I can approach Hilton Garden in, Days in, you know, Best Western, you know, places like that to get vouchers that they can use for tax write-offs. I can approach Southwest and Delta and United to be able to get vouchers for plane tickets, maybe for a tax write-off, 
and then just give it away because that was the whole goal to start with. I never wanted to do any fundraising or have to pay for the trip. I just want to give the shit away. Find a guy that, that's hungry and wants to go to a conference and give it to him. That's the big goal of everything, and I'm working towards that right now. Hell yeah, man. And I guarantee your chief's proud of the stuff that you're doing. I'm very proud. Well, and one topic that you guys didn't bring up, but that I kind of want to touch on, and Chief, I think you have some thoughts on this, is the fire service putting an increased emphasis on uh, anybody who wants to promote having formal education added to their resume. In a blue-collar job like this, a lot of guys don't have that, and a lot of guys have a ton of experience that would be super beneficial on the fire ground. So in our department, luckily, we, we're not you know edging out guys you're in promotion just because they don't have a certain degree or certain level of degree or X amount of certifications. But I'm sure in large departments, especially near the Houston area, I'm sure you guys run into that a little more than we do. Yeah, we're actually a smaller department, but yeah, you're right. They, you know, they, you, you get points on a promotional exam if you have a degree in underwater basketball. And, I mean, it just it hey, that's a valuable sense. skill. That's that's yeah, a you that's know. a life skill. You'll need that one day. Yeah, uh, yeah. It, it, to me, it, is it relevant? If you have an associate's degree, you basically graduated high school twice. I made a post on Facebook the other day that started quite a bit of controversy, but, you know, I believe controversy drives conversation. And I I didn't really agree 100% with what I posted. If I did, you know, we wouldn't have points for education here at East County. We do. I just think in that post for the firefighting rank, a degree and a higher education does not help you provide a better service as far as fire ground operations. There's nothing that replaces getting in reps. If you want to advance your career in the fire service, by all means, a degree is going to help. A higher education is going to help. I tried to keep it going as long as possible, but, it, you know, a captain from the Houston Fire Department called me out. He went and pulled my TCFP transcript posted it. <laughs> and, uh, he, yeah, he, he basically was like, well, you know, I, I, I think certs have a place, and I believe you do too. And he, he was right. I just don't think for the firefighting rank, a guy coming in with a degree off the street is any better than a guy without one. Yeah, I'll yeah, tell you right now, I have, a, I have a bachelor's degree in legal studies, and I'll tell you, I did not become a lawyer, and it hasn't helped me at all in, in this the fire job. service? No, I just get called lawyer all the time anytime someone brings up the, the collective bargaining agreement we have or <laughs> the yeah. policies. I'm like, I, I don't remember anytime that. Anytime we do anything, Steve was like hazing, and we're like, no, oh, it's character development. It's different. I know more people unemployed with degrees than I do that don't have degrees. This absolutely is a blue-collar job. It does not change my opinion on you versus someone else if they have a degree and you don't. I want to know what work ethic you have and what you're able to complete physically and manually before I want to know what you did in school. I kind of feel like I spit in my parents' face because they uh, sponsored my uh, degree fully, but they did force me to get a four-year degree, and then I turn around, you know, I leave the country for a few years, come back, like, yeah. I'm going to join the fire service. Oh, do you need a degree? No, you just show up, take the test, go to the academy, do that whole thing. <laughs> Learn a whole new set of skills. Yeah, so, yeah I, I kind of do have an opinion on it. And it's basically not what everyone took from it online the other day. I think if you want to advance your career, then yeah, it is a positive thing. But for the front line, boots on the ground, I can give a shit less if you have a degree or not. I can definitely see that. I mean, you, if, you, if you've got to select two guys and one has a degree in shit, I don't know, accounting. I'm pretty sure you're not going to look at the guy without a degree and be like, oh, well, he's a piece of shit because he doesn't have a degree. No, like you you could give a rat's ass less about your accounting degree. You're going to be a grunt. I want to see you work. Yeah, and uh, one of the hardest working firefighters we have who's super stoked to go to fires all the time, he has experience in the oil field and no college education, but that dude... 
I would fight fire with him any day, and I'm always happy to. And then you got Cody over here. He's he's putting himself through college so he can be a chief in like five years. And that's kind of what you're forced to do now, and that's kind of what, you know, part of that post the other day was there were some people that I highly respect that made some comments on there, and it is relevant to the fire service, and you have to have it to promote certain areas because we select it to do that. It was not done because you needed it for the job. I mean, yeah, does someone have more discipline if they get a degree? Sure. I don't have one, and somebody could say, well, he's just trash-talking it because he doesn't have one. But I just think if you focus in on your job-specific tasks that you have to do, you'll be further along than going and taking an algebra class. Well, as a guy with a degree in a fire-related – I got a fire science degree. It is my second high school. It is an associate's. I'm proud of it. But I, that degree, I mean – Honestly, is it going to help my fire ground? I, I learned a lot from it. Yeah, sure. But is it going to replace the experience I have on the fire ground? Hell no. No. It, it, honestly, honestly, it's a piece of paper. <laughs> that's, that's it. And the it's not going to replace experience on the fire ground. And I think you have a better result from people who come into the fire department and then advance into further education than you do with the guys that come in and they already have it. I think we've switched in the fire service from, and I hate to use this, but we switched from real men to people who are entitled. You used to have carpenters, welders, oil field hands. You used to have all these people coming into the fire department and working this job for for basically insurance because they ran a company on the side, and they did manual labor on their days off, and they were real men. And now you have guys coming in with a, a degree, and they have a sense of entitlement. Their first day on the job, they don't even know how to start a chainsaw sometimes. That's the negative aspect of you can become certified in the state of Texas by memorizing a test paper. That's one of my first things my captain tells a new rookie that we get. Do you know how to start a lawnmower? Because there's kids that come in who's never mowed their yard. Their dad always had somebody do it. Or, you know, he didn't do it. Or he paid somebody. Or he did it all the time. It's what we're dealing with. It's an actual thing. It is. Yeah, I'd rather you have a PhD in putting hose on the ground in an MBA and making badasses and a DA in default aggression. That's right. Aggression, that's a that's a hot term right there. <laughs> yeah. Guys, we could make this podcast last forever, but I think it's time to time to wrap it up and we definitely want to have you guys back on. We could we could do episodes upon episodes on just single topics. But we are so glad that you guys uh, hopped on and, and did this podcast with us. I know me and Steven were excited about it. And we're definitely ready to go down and do some training with you guys. Come on, man. And we're more than welcome to come back on this thing anytime you want, brother. Thanks for having us. Hell yeah. Uh, we certainly appreciate it. It's always great talking to guys who are super plugged into the fire service. Both of you guys are giving back in your own ways with the scholarship, sending guys to training. And with the FT Tactics class and getting departments to look at their attack lines and their packages. And that's something I've never thought of myself. You know, I always thought, oh, smoothboard, that'll solve all our problems. No, you got to go look at the whole thing. Anyways... I think it's really cool that you guys are opening your people's eyes towards that and making people look at the big picture. It's great. All these files you upload to the page and you guys being so active and moderating it. It's been awesome. So thank you guys so much for agreeing to do the podcast. Go out and check out Smoothbore Cartel. Make sure to buy some merch. Look up FD Tactics if you want some quality training. And log into Facebook. Head over to Engine Company Resurrection. Tell all your friends. And what we like to do, guys, is we like to... For you to, if you had like one message to leave the fire department, I know it's 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 such a, a a big thing, or for the fire service at this time, just 
Kyle, you've got your message of what you feel like you need to tell these guys listening, throw it out, and then Howard right after it. Man, the biggest thing that I could tell somebody if you were brand new on this job or even a guy that's in this job is get out and put in work, man. Put cotton on the ground every day. Prove efficiency in what you're capable of. Don't find out at 3 o'clock in the morning that your rookie doesn't know how to stretch. Don't find out in a smoky hallway that your attack package is not comparable to your building construction or your abilities with this line that your manpower can't push. And the biggest thing is just read, man. Read, put the information in, in your mind, and then go out and put it into practice on the drill ground, man, and just uh, stay into the job, man. You know, at, at one point where you decide that you're not into this job anymore, there's five more guys waiting to take your place, man, so get on. For me, it's stop overthinking this shit. Start focusing more in on the first five minutes if your house was on fire. That's it. Short and simple, but it hits to the bone. I mean, stop overcomplicating this shit with all these tactics and stuff. Act like it's your damn house on fire. If my house is on fire, try to fucking stop me from going in and getting my kids. That's right. It is your emergency. If I ever hear somebody, well, we don't run on the fire ground. I will snap your fucking neck. Like, if a family's inside that house, you fucking run your ass. You get inside and you go do work. And like you said, it, it is your emergency. That's what you signed up for. Absolutely, man. Always expect fire. Always expect victims, man. And if my house is on fire and my wife's inside and I see a, see somebody take a knee to put their mask on in the front yard, I'm going to be pissed. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to drop kick you and take your gear. All right, well, thank you guys so much for doing the interview. It was great. It was fun. Like Cody said, we could definitely talk for a lot longer but we're not going to do that we're going to save that for another episode thank you so much thanks guys thanks brother well there you have it we finally hit the topic of smoothbore versus fog and i'm sure you all enjoyed it very much especially the guys on both sides of the fence like you've got your really extreme Fog nozzle guys and your real extreme smoothbore guys. And then we just like, we killed it for you. I'm sorry. <laughs> like it, it, I mean, where do we go from here? Yeah. I think we killed the debate finally. I don't think it was killed. I mean, the debate will forever happen, but we offered such a great, or Kyle and Howard did, they offered like the best answer to it, which is put the fucking fire out. It's all about tactics. Exactly. I mean, See, it, it, we run three-piece Halligans on our engines, and while I would love to have a Pro Bar, I got to learn how to work with that three-piece Halligan because that's, that's what I got. That's what you got, so you got to do what you got. Is there better ways of doing things? Of course. Of course. Is our way wrong of doing things? Debatable. Debatable. <laughs> but I'm not going to point my finger over at somebody anymore. I mean, I, I possibly have on other episodes maybe. I, th I think I'm guilty of that. But with each and every episode, ladies and gentlemen, you're seeing me grow and develop. So I'm trying to be uh, a little better at not pointing fingers at people and saying, you're fucking doing it wrong. <laughs> because their shit might work. It might be right for them. I might, I'm just a dumbass telling them that they're doing something wrong. So I'm trying not to do that anymore. I'm trying to be very open-minded to all different tactics and strategies and not just hardcore one side or the other saying it's right or wrong. He's broadening his worldview. Broadening my horizons. Only in the fire service. Everything else, he is completely small-minded. Bullshit. Not small-minded. You're very smart. You are narrow-minded. Bullshit. I'm what? <laughs> bring it. Send it. I did just bring it, and I sent it. You did not. 
I postmarked it and dropped it off in the mailbox. I don't think so. For overnight delivery to your place, and you're just going to rip it up. No. While drinking a ribbit. Possibly. Steven's like super high on a ribbit right now. Yeah, this is crazy. They shouldn't sell this to the general public. Yeah, he. I'm coming down off mine because like I'm immune to him at this point. <laughs> like my tolerance, my ribbit tolerance is too high. And Steven had his first one and he's losing it. I don't know what to do with myself, if we're completely honest. What do I do with my hands? What do I do with my hands? Can you see my hands, uh-huh. listeners? You're <laughs> just floating up in front of the mic. He's seeing sounds and hearing colors. Exactly. Well, let us know what you thought of the interview. And definitely check out Smoothbore Cartel. Engine Company Resurrection. FD Tactics. Know your trade. Do your job. And do work. See you guys. See you, motherfuckers. Bye!